The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our text tonight is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12 at verse 28, continuing our study in this Gospel, Luke 12, 28, to the end of chapter 12, although the, the majority of our focus will be on the first half of our text, we will talk about the other aspects as well. Please give ear to the Word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. What is the greatest commandment? This scribe was essentially trying to get to the heart of how to be saved. Doesn't it remind you somewhat of the rich young ruler who came and asked Jesus about certain things and wanted to know what he had to do to be saved. 
It was really getting to the heart of how to be acceptable to God. And the scribes of Jesus' day were pretty similar to the clergy or the seminary professors of our day. And what we find here is a scribe who comes with a question, and we find that he needs to be converted. It's an interesting historical point that verse 34 of our text, where Jesus replies to him, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That phrase, that verse, was a key verse in another person's life, a person who's well-known in history, the man John Wesley. Many of you have heard that name and know history about him. John Wesley was born in 1703. He was the 15th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. He enjoyed a good upbringing with a very dedicated Christian mother, and he went on to a brilliant career at Oxford. He was elected a fellow of Lincoln College in 1726. He was 23 years old at the time. And then he served as a professor for a time, and finally he's act- he was actually ordained a priest in the Church of England in 1728. John Wesley was 25 years old at that time. And he returned to Oxford and joined a group of undergraduate led by his brother Charles. You've probably heard of them. George Whitfield, who turned out to be really the greatest evangelist of the time, was part of that group. They were derisively nicknamed by their fellow students the Holy Club for their devotion to the Lord. But Wesley says that he was not truly converted even at this time in his life. These men devoted themselves to the study of the Greek New Testament and to devotional exercises. Wesley set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection He took the communion sacrament once a week at the Anglican Church. He set himself to conquer every sin. He fasted twice a week. He visited the prison. He helped the poor and the sick. All the members of this holy club did that. Doing all this, hoping to be right with God, he would later say. And in 1735, you may know the story, now he's 32 years old, still unconverted, And he accepts this invitation by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians in the colony of Georgia, this small, struggling colony. And if you know anything about Wesley's story, it was a disaster, the few years that he spent there. Conflicts with everybody on every side. He he got sick and almost died of disease. He really needed to take peacemaking 101, 102, 103, 104 before he went there. He needed a lot of that. He finally had to sneak out of town and take a ship and come home. And it was on that trip home with the German Moravian Christians who, in a great storm, calmly were singing hymns of praise to God. And Wesley would later on write, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, Who shall convert me? And he returned very dejected. In fact, he he snubbed George Whitfield, who was leaving for his first tour of America from the same port, wouldn't even see him, knowing that Whitfield had meteoric success. Whitfield had been converted and was preaching the gospel now in England 
with thousands coming to hear him and Wesley dejected and struggling spiritually. And on May 24th, 1738, a method of Bible study that I wouldn't recommend opened his Bible and put his finger on a text. And it was this text. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And you might know that that day, May 24th, 1738, it was the evening of that day that he considers himself to come to faith in Christ. John Wesley was like this scribe. He was a very learned religious man who needed to come to faith in Christ. Even though he was so outwardly religious, there wasn't the heart of the matter with him. What do we learn from this important biblical text about Jesus' answer to the question of this scribe? Well, first of all, let us see the command to love God stands at the heart of all true obedience. The command to love God stands at the heart of all true obedience to God. It's interesting, I think, to hear what Rick just told us about Hindus needing to be confronted with their devotion to God. And don't Americans need that too? Maybe they're nominally attending church once or twice a year or a few times a year. But this command really gets to the heart of it. We can imagine this scene Verse 28 tells us this, 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 one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with, with one another. In other words, he's been listening to the questions and answers. And Jesus has, has hit a home run with every question the, fa- the Pharisees or the Sadducees have brought him up to this point. Stunning answers. You can just imagine the crowds and hear the scribes as well with their jaws on the ground at the wisdom proceeding from Jesus' lips, this uneducated rabbi. And probably as these questions were going on, we might imagine that the scribe was rooting for his religious team, the Pharisees and Sadducees, even though they disagreed among themselves, we know. You can imagine him uh, rooting that, you know, they show this upstart rabbi how he's wrong because Jesus was upsetting the religious apple cart of the time. He was upsetting their religious equation, their way to get to God and be acceptable to God by obedience to the rules. But obviously, as these questions and answers were going on, we see that this scribe, as he sees the dispute, sees that Jesus answered them well, the verse says. He begins to have a sense that there is great wisdom coming from this man. And it's almost like this question kind of spontaneously came out of him. It wasn't like some of the other questions that were probably premeditated and planned, and this is the good one we're going to give him. You can almost see him warming to Jesus' response and then saying this question, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the scribes were the professional students and teachers of the law. These were the experts in the law. The scribes spent their lives studying and classifying and categorizing the Old Testament law. It's probably, you've probably heard that there were 613 
laws or rules seen by the scribes in the Old Testament. And they were constantly evaluating which are the lighter laws, which are the weightier laws, which are the the most important ones, what would take precedent over what. These questions about the law, trying to distinguish and interpret the law. And so it's not surprising that this scribe would give to Jesus what would have been pretty much the standard question that the scribes were seeking to answer, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, if you know that and you keep that commandment, then you would be acceptable to God is the implication here. And Jesus answers them, verse 29, the most important is, and then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These were not anything new to the scribes or to a pious Jew. In fact, the, um, the pious Jew repeated the Shema Every morning and evening, hear, O Israel, and would repeat that in his prayers. Uh, Those words of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 were um, written inside, uh, written and enclosed in a small leather box. You might know the name phylactery that that the pious Jew would wear, a small leather box that you'd wear on your forehead to keep it right before your eyes, and you wear it on your wrist to pray these little containers with the Word of God. And they were also to be the words that were included in the mezuzah, this small round box that was hung on the door of your house to be a reminder. This wasn't anything unusual. This was at the heartbeat of what Jews understood to be the law of God. And then Leviticus 19.18, also very familiar. And so it wasn't as though Jesus was telling them something radical or something new, but he was emphasizing what is the most important. And it, it could have been radical in a sense. Some scholars argued that what was radical about it is Jesus combines these two together and shows that these two together summarize the Ten Commandments. The first one, the first four commandments about God and our relationship to God, and the second one, the next six commandments about our relationship to others. But Jesus' answer shows that love for God and love for others cannot be divided. Jesus is really getting to this matter of the devotion of one's heart. He's saying that God is to to be the only object of the primary devotion of our hearts. That's why there's this emphasis in the text on all uh, uh, describe, describing the human being from four different ways. It's not he's not dividing our inner being into four parts: uh, heart, mind, soul, strength. It's just different ways of emphasizing our devotion to God, our love for God, the center of my whole being is to be directed toward God and his glory. That's the emphasis here. My heart, my ambitions, my motives, my love, my soul, 
my affections and emotions in tune with God's will and set aflame with the desire to serve him and seek him. My mind, my thought life, always in line with God's will in scripture and submitted to God. My strength, my energy, my life given to God. What a thorough summary of devotion to God. It's convicting, isn't it? Jesus is not choosing love over law, but he is showing that love is what fulfills the law. And his point is, the law is not fulfilled unless it is obeyed as a way of giving and showing love, first and foremost to God, and then also to others. That is the only way of true obedience to God. And then out of that love, loving others as ourselves. It's really a reflection of the high standard of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 13, I won't turn there, but you know that that supreme chapter on love says that, though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Do you hear what that scripture is saying? It's saying, even if you're a martyr for Christ somehow, and you're burned at the stake, but you don't have this kind of love for God, then it's worthless. It's nothing. Though all you give all your goods to someone, it's nothing without love. That's what 1 Corinthians says. The most stupendous acts of sacrifice are not acceptable to God apart from genuine love for him. There it is. That's the standard that Jesus sets. You just wonder what the scribe was thinking when he got that answer. We'll get to it now because our second point is this command to love God shows us our need for Christ. This high command to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength shows us our need for the gospel. That's the glory of what Jesus tells us here. We get the scribe's response here in verses 32 and 33. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice that ending part. The scribe is saying, yes, I believe that is the right answer. And he's comparing it to outward religious ceremony without love, offering burnt offerings and sacrifices, things that the prophets thundered about. Isaiah and Jeremiah talking about the nominal religion of their day and people going through religious motions, but there's no heart in it. There's no love for God. And so this scribe is saying, yes, I think you are right. And you can just see his mind going and the gears turning. And as he responds like that, Jesus responds with this, I would call, deliberately ambiguous answer. Jesus says these words. When he saw that he answered wisely, Jesus saw that this scribe answered wisely in part, I would say, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And notice, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
A deliberately ambiguous response. You are not far from the kingdom of God. There's both an encouragement and a warning in those words, isn't it? The encouragement is, you are not far. In other words, you are on the threshold. And no doubt Jesus was thinking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the other scribes who were there that day, these people who have been hounding him and trying to find every way to oppose him. And I would say it this way, compared to his peers, this scribe was not far. You could see that he had a genuine integrity to him and was seeking something of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. But to be not far is not to be in. It was an encouraging answer, but it was also an answer that contained a warning. You are not far. That means that this very religious, very learned seminary professor was being told, you are not in the kingdom of God. With all your knowledge, with all your thinking about this, you are not in. There's a warning here that you can know much biblical truth and not be saved. You must receive Jesus Christ through repentance and faith to be in the kingdom. And the way to come to really begin at square one, to begin to love God with all your heart and strength and soul and mind, is to see your desperate need and to see the mercy and grace and glory of Jesus Christ. And in fact, when Jesus turns the table in the next verses, it asks the scribes, notice he asks the scribes in verse 35, a question about the son of David in Psalm 110. And he says, how does David call him Lord? None of them could answer him. The throng was glad because they, they, they were glad to see the scribes and the religious leaders, in a sense, defeated in debate. And Jesus probably was the only one there that day who knew the answer. The reason that David calls him Lord is because Jesus Christ was and is the preexistent Lord and God of David, the human being. No wonder he has to call him Lord. Only Jesus understood the answer to that. This scribe, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, except for maybe a few exceptions eventually, did not see who Jesus was, the divine Son of God and Son of Man, the Messiah. They failed to see the greatness and glory of Christ. The law, you see, is summarized very powerfully here by Jesus And the law is holy and good, we're told. But we have to remember that one of the great purposes of the law is to show us our need of the gospel. The law is given in part to bring us to Christ, to lead us to trust in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing to love God perfectly and to love others as yourself perfectly. But don't we all know that we fall woefully short of that standard? Some of you may have been at the Lenten service the other week when um, former pastor Troy DeBruin preached 
on one of our Lenten themes, and he illustrated using the idea of trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. You know, that some of us might get 15 feet and some of us might get 7 feet. It reminded me of this, this fitness exam in sixth grade that I still remember. You could earn a blue shirt with Moreland, the name of our school, written on it if you passed four areas. And it wasn't like you were competing with others. As many who passed these areas would get the blue shirt. I just tell you, I did get the blue shirt. I looked the other month to see if it was still in my drawer because I love that blue shirt so much. But you had to do so many push-ups, so many sit-ups, so many pull-ups. But the real hard thing was the broad jump. You had to stand still and jump with two feet, six feet. You had to go that far. This is sixth graders. I practiced that for hours on end, trying to do the broad jump six feet. And I mentioned that because I think that's... I, did, I finally did do it by the skin of my teeth, and I got the blue shirt. It was one of the happiest days of my life. But... I think that's how people often view being acceptable to God. Troy talks about it, trying to jump the Grand Canyon, which is a mile wide at some points. Some people, I think, many of us, have had the idea at times that if I could do the broad jump six feet, we might say, yes, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm um, a sinner before God, but really I'm not all that bad. And hopefully God will let me into heaven in the end. There are really bad people in this world. I'm not one of them. Um, I think I can jump the six feet. But this commandment Jesus is showing us, this commandment about loving God perfectly, it's like not even jumping the Grand Canyon. It's like jumping to the moon, isn't it? Only Jesus Christ kept the law of God perfectly without blemish, without any stumble. He kept the whole law for us, and then he died on the cross for us. And so this law, just as it should have worked with the scribe, it should work with us, should get us to see our need and to trust in Jesus Christ alone to save us from our deep sin. Well, My final point is this about this command. The clearest evidence of loving God is loving people. The clearest evidence of loving God is loving people. And we see that from how these commands are linked here. And we see it repeated in Scripture many other places as well. For example, in 1 John 4.20, the apostle says, If anyone says, I love God, there's the first part, isn't it? If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And notice he describes hating your brother as equivalent to not loving him. Most of us would say, oh, I don't hate anyone. And the Apostle John is saying, if you don't perfectly love them, and there's a sense that you hate them. And so it's loving our brother whom we have seen really is a standard for how well we're loving God. And Christians are to be growing in their love for the Lord and in their love for others around them. In fact, John concludes that paragraph, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's a similar statement of here, this this connection of these two commands, the text should, 
should drive us to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, to repent of our sins and turn to him. But it should also remind us that the fruit of faith is preeminently love for others. If we have come to trust in Christ, we must always be seeking to adorn our our profession of faith with our love for others. I remember years ago reading Francis Schaeffer's little book, The Mark of the Christian. And at that point in my life, I was kind of intrigued. Well, what is the mark? Is some supernatural sign? It's the mark of loving others. That's what the book is about. As a Christian, we always need to be seek to be growing in our love for God and our love for others. And in fact, Romans 12, Romans 13 verse 8 tells us that the debt to love others is a debt that we never finish paying off. Paul says, no, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He's basically saying the only debt you never pay off is the debt of love as you grow in Christ. And then he fills that out with some of the commandments and talks about love being the fulfilling of the law. And so we ought to pray for God's grace and strength and the power of the Spirit to love God more and to love our neighbors. But I would conclude, conclude with just two examples here from our text. One is a negative example in verses 38, 39, and 40. Because here we see Jesus reacting to the scribes one last time here. In verse 38, it says that he tells them, Beware of the scribes. And then it has this description of the scribes. And I kind of see this description as a description of anti-love, as the opposite of love. What governs these scribes here? Well, look at this. They like to walk around in long robes, like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogue, the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. There are two ways, two primary ways, Scripture tells us to beware of false teachers in the church. One is wrong doctrine, but the other great evidence is wrong love, not genuinely loving others. And here we especially see Jesus highlight this lack of love these scribes who loved the praises of men, who loved being honored, who, who loved money, but disguised their love for money as concern and actually preyed on the weak of society. And with no real love, but all for show. A sobering warning to us. Our son and his wife, Stephen and Lauren, were telling us the other day that they're building a relationship with some neighbors, a husband and wife and their kids, and and the wife told them that she's been in and out of a health, wealth, prosperity cult for 40 years. And she was just so mixed up because of this. And the husband was fed up with it all and thought all pastors were crooks and charlatans. That was his view, although he's kind to Stephen. He doesn't know if it's true for Stephen or not. And the wife has had a number of conversations with Stephen and Lauren, and they've sent her various things through Facebook and things to read on different websites and sermons to listen to to tell them 
what false teachers do. And the other day, she came to Stephen and Lauren and said that she believes that she sees things for the first time and sees the lie she has believed for all these years in this cult that so harassed her, really. That's the negative example. That's the opposite of love. Christians are not to be like that. We're to be genuinely loving, preaching and teaching and sharing the truth of the gospel. It's far from what the scribes were doing. But then the final example is this wonderful widow who put in the two small copper coins that added up to a penny. And Jesus commends her. And he, he tells because they gave out of her abundance, but she put in out of her poverty everything she had. Her heart, we must conclude, was moved by the love of God and filled with faith in her God. The evening of May 24th, 1738, John Wesley put in his journal the famous statement you've probably read. He says, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was not the end, by the way, of John Wesley's struggle with assurance, which went on for some time still. But I leave you with this question, has your heart been warmed with true faith in Jesus Christ. If so, then this commandment, even though we never live fully up to it in this life, this commandment is something beautiful and glorious that we strive and seek the Lord to fulfill, that we love our Lord and our God with all our heart and strength and mind and soul. May that be the case. Amen. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who declared such amazing truth even when opposed by sinful men, even when questioned in a hostile environment, here we have recorded for us words of inspiration, inerrant words of the Bible for us to strengthen us and help us, to teach us, to guide us. Oh, Lord, let us take these to heart. And, Father, if there's anyone here this evening who hasn't given you their supreme devotion, hasn't trusted in you completely, hasn't called upon you in repentance and faith and turned away from everything else in this world. O Lord, may you work true faith in their lives. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.